0: the National Institutes of Health in Bethesda, Maryland, this is All About Grants. Hello, and welcome to another edition of NIH's All About Grants podcast. I'm your host, David Kossib, with the NIH's Office of Extramural Research. And today, we'll be discussing a topic that's important when you're putting together your application if you're proposing the use of animals, and that's also considering the uh, use of alternatives to animals in your research. And with us, we have Dr. Neera Gopi. She directs the Policy and Education Office within the NIH's Office of Laboratory Animal Welfare. And we also have Dr. Christine Livingston. She is a Scientific Review Officer with the National Center for Advancing Translational Sciences, or NCATS. Thank you both for being with us.
1: Thank you, David. It's good to be here.
2: Thanks for having us. Glad to be here.
0: Great, great. So, Nira, I'm going to turn to you first. I want you to help frame this conversation, uh, specifically telling us around, like, the three R's, replacement, refinement, and reduction in the use of laboratory animals, and, and also how NIH considers these um, uh, alternatives in research.
1: So, David, this this term, this term, this concept of three R's was coined way back in 1949 by Drs. Russell and Birch, where they advocated new scientific approaches by introducing the concept of the three R's, reduction refinement, and replacement. And the three R's are used as an ethical framework for improving laboratory animal welfare and is synonymous with alternatives or alternative methods for minimizing potential for pain and distress in animals used in biomedical research.
0: Right. Thank you for that. So are there any regulations or policies that uh, must be taken into Mm -hmm. consideration for the use of alternatives to animals?
1: Actually, there are numerous federal laws and regulations and policies that require that research involving the use of animals must be reviewed and determined to be scientifically and ethically justifiable with considerations of alternatives to animal research. And the NIH actually conducts research using animals at 23 institutes and funds extramural research that involves the use of animals. I won't go into each one of these Reg- policies and regulations but as this podcast progresses we may mention a few of these.
0: So along those lines how can we ensure that researchers do consider the use of alternatives to animals?
1: So I would say that first of all the Health Research Extension Act of 1985 which provides a legislative mandate for the PHS policy it requires researchers involved with animal care treatment and use, that they have available to them instruction or training in the concept of availability and use of research or test methods that limit the use of animals or limit animal distress. In addition, the PHS policy also requires institutions to describe in their assurance agreement with NIHO law a synopsis of training or instruction offered to scientists, animal technicians, and other personnel involved in the care and use of animals. This includes the humane practice of animal care and use, and also to describe methods that minimize the number of animals required to obtain valid results and minimize animal distress. i will also like to mention that the US government principle number three, which is a group of nine ethical principles governing the care and use of animals used in research, required researchers to use the minimum number of animals required to obtain valid results and to consider alternative methods such as mathematical models, computer simulation, and in vitro bio- biological systems. And the principles call for researchers to consider alternatives regardless of whether the p- procedures cause pain or distress to animals. And finally, I'd like to also mention that as a condition of receiving funded funding for animal research, institutions and researchers must comply with the eighth edition of the guide for the care and use of laboratory animals, also known as the guide. And the guide states that in preparing and reviewing research protocols, researchers and animal care and use committees should consider the availability or appropriateness of using less invasive procedures, other species, isolated organ preparation, cell or tissue culture, or, compu- or computer simulation, and the guide does not limit this research to painful or distressful uh, procedures. I'd like to also please uh, please note that uh, researchers must comply with all other federal statutes and regulations relating to animals.
0: And what about for the institutional side?
1: So, great question, David. From an institutional perspective. No absolutely no animal work can be conducted without an approved animal welfare assurance, which is pretty much in essence a contract between the NIH and the institution which commits them to to good animal welfare. So that's something that must be done by the institution, by the researcher, and must be negotiated between OLO and that grantee institution. And within that animal welfare assurance, there is a description of the training or the instruction available to scientists, animal technicians, and other personnel who are involved in animal care, which includes training that minimizes the number of vertebrate animals used, as well as the minimization of pain and distress. I'd also like to add that NIH Olo also provides training to researchers on animal care on alternatives, and we do have under our useful links Tab on our on OLA's webpage, there is searches for alternatives as well as database searches. OLO also does site visits. We conduct site visits to assess the adequacy and accuracy of the institution's compliance with the PHS policy. And so, by doing that, when during our site visit, what what is included in that site visit is a review of the IACUC approved protocol form, which includes a search for alternatives. So there's a whole range of different checks and balances in place to ensure that the institutions do consider the use of alternatives, as well as NIH's oversight of these alternative searches.
0: Wonderful. Great. So now I actually want to turn to Christine. Can you tell us uh, where in the application someone might be talking about alternatives to animals and how they might justify the use of animals if there are no alternatives?
2: So that would be included with the rationale for your research. It would be located in the research plan segment of your um, application. That's the six or 12-page research plan that's associated with any grant application coming into the NIH. Um, In that uh, section of the application, you would, if there are alternatives, you would probably be using them. If there are no alternatives, then you need to justify your choice of animal model. And not only your choice of animal model, but um, if there are models that are close to the one that you're using, you might cite those but indicate what their limitations are. Um, uh, basically, you're providing the rationale for your scientific approach, and that includes your animal or non-animal model. It should all be up in the research um, research plan. Uh, you would probably also justify the use of uh, the number of animals that you would be using in the research plan. So you would probably indicate somewhere in the rigor and reproducibility section the number of animals you're using, and uh, you want to minimize that, the number of animals you're using, but not to the point that you would not get a valid scientific answer. So you want to use enough animals to get a good answer, but not more than you need. So your choice of animal model and the number of animals would all be justified under rationale in, in the research plan.
0: Thank you for that. So it, for those animals that are used, how can a uh, researcher um, indicate the methods that are being used um, actually do consider, have considerations for pain and, and, and any sort of distress on those that are involved?
1: So I can chime in here to add into to what Christine mentioned. The NIH also requires information on the involvement of vertebrate animals to be submitted by extramural researchers as part of their peer review process, what is called a a vertebrate animal section or VAS. And this VAS applicants must complete three criteria within this VAS. One of these criteria, in addition to requiring that that the researchers address alternatives, the justification for alternatives, and use of alternative models, they must also address and complete a description of the planned interventions to minimize discomfort, distress, pain, and injury, including the use of analgesia, anesthesia, sedation, and as well as a description of humane endpoints.
0: Great. Thanks for that. Christine, turning back to you, you're at NCATS. Um, Neera touched on some of the alternatives earlier, but I I wanted to Specifically, I have a question on that. And um, What are some alternatives that researchers can consider for the use of ANSI?
2: So I work at an institute that advances translational studies, and so very interested in that sort of the, going from bench science into clinical science, uh, the translation between those. So we're very interested in drug development and therapeutic development, and what are the methods that we can use to do that, other methods would be, in some cases, the use of human subjects. There's not a lot that you can do at the, in basic science or preclinical research that where you would use human subjects. There may be a few things. But the two big areas are in vitro models, or in silico models. And the in vitro models could cover everything from cell culture, and those cell cultures could be based on primary human cells or human cell lines. They could be animal cell lines. Um, stem cells, could be any sort of thing. The Two of the big models that have become very popular in terms of in vitro models are the organoids and the microphysiological systems. The microphysiological systems in particular were developed as a way to... they, They were really developed in conjunction with the FDA and DARPA. And there was much interest from the European scientific community in developing these. They're often... Cellular can't call them mini organoids, but they're the critical cells from different organs. Uh, you may take the critical cell types from a liver, for instance, and grow them on a microfluidic platform. And oftentimes, those can be grown from human cells or human induced pluripotent stem cells. Or they may be you may do it with bio, you may develop them with bioprinting. But if they include enough of the critical cell types from a given organ, you can actually use that organ. Grow it under conditions that it puts them in both the correct molecular as well as physical environment. So, in other words, if you're looking at a lung tissue, you would you would give it rhythmic stretch. If you're looking at something vascular, or you're looking at something related to the kidney, you would develop your model so that you have shear flow. And these, you you put the stem cells on these platforms, and they can actually grow up into a really pretty well functioning organs, and they become wonderful models for testing toxicity and efficacy of different therapeutics. They already have a lot of attention from regulatory agencies, such as the FDA, agencies within the European Union, and they're a great way to either reduce or ultimately the goal would be to replace the use of animals for many of the tox efficacy studies that we currently conduct the last area alternatives are the in silico models and of course those are the mathematical and computer models many of those are dependent on having the correct information and data and variables to plug in in the front end of the model so all of the above still have limitations but they are all working towards reducing the number of animals used and ultimately as we accumulate more and more data and science and information to replace the use of animals for many studies.
0: Great, great. Thank you for that. Nira. I want to jump back on something you mentioned in one of your earlier answers, and that's the IACOC, the Institutional Animal Care and Use Committee. Can you tell us more about their role in this process?
1: Sure. So the PHS policy required that research, researchers submit written description of their projects to their IACOC, their so Institutional Animal Care and Use Committees, and in, included in that written description, they must include a description of research activities that do not necessarily duplicate previous experiments. They must also include a description of methods and sources used to determine that alternate alternatives were not available. And so, once once these descriptions are included in those protocols, the IACUC is responsible for reviewing and approving. These, these descriptions as submitted by the researchers.
0: Well, on, the, on a similar vein, what about for peer reviewers? Uh, Christine, you're in scientific review. Can you tell us uh, how the peer reviewers are thinking about alter- alternatives?
2: So the peer reviewers are also looking at the Animal Care and use Protocol. The big difference is, is that the peer reviewers are oftentimes individuals who are in the same scientific field as the grant applicant. So they are very familiar with the various animal models or non-animal models, the alternatives. They know the pluses and the minuses, the advantages, the disadvantages, and the limitations of those models. And they're very good at, number one, evaluating, because they're in the same field as the grant applicant, they're very good at evaluating the importance of the question being asked. Is this really a valid question that we need to ask and address? They know if the animal model is the best model, if that's what's being proposed. They can evaluate that. They know if there's an alternative because they're in that same field. They also have a, a different perspective as they look at power analysis and looking at the required number of animals. They can judge a little bit more. I guess their judgment is more informed because they're in the same field. Looking at the realistic. how realistic is the power analysis in terms of the the numbers that go into it. So they're good at recognizing your rationale for choice of model, whether it's an animal model or an alternative model. They can, they're very good at looking at that. And they do speak up on that if they feel that you've chosen a model that is not the best choice scientifically.
0: And what if an application makes it all the way through all of these steps and actually gets awarded? How should alternatives to animals be thought of post-award?
2: I would certainly think that if post-award, you've been awarded, say you've been awarded a five-year R01 grant, and two or three years down the line, a, a new technique or a new approach comes out or a new model comes out. If you can still achieve your specific aims using an alternative, if I were a grantee, I would certainly pick up the phone, call my program officer, and discuss Going in a slightly different direction, as long as you're still achieving your aims, you certainly could use an alternative model.
1: And I would like to add, David, that you know the IACUC is also required to conduct a complete review at least once every three years. So if there has been any improvements or progress made in terms of a, a more appropriate animal model, then that's a time where researcher can surely make changes to their protocol to reflect those advancements in the models used.
0: Great. So before we close out, I always like to give the guests an opportunity for any final thoughts you would like to leave with the audience. And I welcome to both of you guys to mention anything about alternatives to animals that our audience should be thinking about.
1: So I'd like to say that in closing that investigators are accountable for the protection of research animals in their care from the early stages of planning all the way through study completion. And that the only acceptable research involving animals is one that uses the smallest number of animals and causes the least possible pain or distress, as well as a research which is consistent with achievement of a justifiable scientific purpose, which is necessary because there's no other way of achieving that purpose. And that, you know, the use of laboratory animals are critical to biomedical research. An alternative should always be considered to reduce the number of animals used, but at this point in time, cannot completely replace them.
2: Well, I, I would like to echo that. I and I encourage all investigators to keep to kind of keep their eyes open for alternatives. There are certainly multiple uh, prominent institutions in the in the United States that have um, centers that are looking for the use of alternative methods. And there are certainly European agencies. I think one of the things I mentioned uh, was the use of animals for toxicity and efficacy testing. We really would like to see the use of animals in those areas reduced. There is an interagency coordinating committee on the validation of alternative methods. It's called ICVAM for short. That is actually a permanent committee of NIEHS. It was established in 2000 by a federal authorization act. Uh, it includes representatives from 16 U.S. federal agencies, and each of them is interested in regulatory affairs, and they look carefully at the use of animals and the generation and dissemination of uh, toxicological and safety testing information. I think it's keeping an eye on those sorts of the activities of those agencies is, is a good idea for all investigators, and I think we all, animals, respect. They have taken us very far in research in the last 150 years, and they warrant respect and good treatment, and they generate good data when taken good care of and handled well.
0: Great. Thank you very much, both uh, Neera and Christine, for this opportunity to hear more about how NIH considers the uh, use of alternatives to animals in, in research. I welcome the audience to check out the Office of Laboratory Animal Welfare's webpage for more information about alternatives. They have some great useful links there. And with that, thank you very much. Uh, This has been David Kossip with another virtual edition of NIH's All About Grants. Thank you.